Hey, what's up, brah, and welcome to the 229th episode of Tolarian's Pretentious College, the podcast that consistently levies public opinions on economic matters we know nothing about, only accepts payments for our bad advice in the form of outsized corporate ad revenues, and invests enormous amounts in three-piece suits embossed with the word hypocrite, all while cranking out bad sketch comedy by the boatload. Oh, oh, wait, 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 wait. Sorry, sorry guys, wrong intro, sorry about that. Um, hello everybody and welcome to the 230th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that still stands, as should we all, with the movement to end racial injustice and to fund police services in favor of more effective options. I saw way too many people being randomly shoved into mom minivans this week. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week, as per usual this summer, is Cliff Daigle, a.k.a. at Word of Commander, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey, everybody. Super glad to be here. I'm looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you. This show, as always, is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to track your specs, chat on an amazing Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Or just get no value at all and presumably shut us down. It's very strange how that doesn't actually work. We'll get there, buddy. I promise. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Cliff, what could possibly be on the agenda this week? Oh, nothing big, James. we got our usual four segments here. First off, we're going to go over the metagame we can review on Magic Online. We've got a Pioneer and a Modern Champs that are worth discussing. Then we've got our top movers. We're going to talk about the big movers in paper and the big movers online as well. One of them is really like went crazy this week. Then in segment three, you and I have made our picks as well as a uh, special user pick that I'm upset I didn't think of myself. And finally, uh, our topic of the week is, uh, you know, I, I thought that we would dedicate some time to discuss the double masters news that we've had and quite frankly nothing else has possibly happened in the finance world has it has we it probably worked? also need to touch on the zendikar 3 product announcements that were oh. uh, part of the live stream that marrow did this weekend where they were talking about a brand new product uh, that they brought into the mix so we'll get to that shortly i do like that and of course we need to take a moment for uh i don't think i can describe it accurately why don't you take <laughs> that away james well, our friend, lovely friends over at uh, Tolarian Community College, and I think it was Pleasant Kenobi joined him, um, decided to levy a hit on MTG Finance and MTG Price in particular this week over on YouTube. So we'll talk a little bit about that and uh, be largely preaching to the choir, I'm sure. Largely, but that's okay, because you're here for all the amazing money that we save you and the value and the... What's the word I'm looking for? The camaraderie of the Discord, plus the all the other things we offer. Uh, first off, let's get to the uh, weekend review in uh, Magic Online. You want to go to Pioneer or Modern first? Yeah, let's go through the Pioneer challenge, I suppose. Pioneer it is. So in Pioneer, uh, we had the uh, challenge. It uh, went off this week. 
Uh, how many people were... Did, did we get the list of how many were in on this one? No, we just go all the way down to 32nd place. Okay. So uh, we had a mono green devotion deck at the top, which had uh, some really, really spicy things going on. Uh, I like a deck that can come out of nowhere with uh, Vivian Arcbow Ranger, Nissa Who Shakes the World, and Karn the Great Creator. Uh, the Karn board is pretty sweet. It's got the Burning Tree Emissary into all kinds of good stuff. Uh, you're playing Oath of Nissa, the Green Ponder. You've got uh, Castle Garenbrig into Nykthos, which is just, you know, peanut butter and jelly. How have I not been playing those two together? I like everything about this, but especially a sideboard full of uh, goodness that you can almost get with everything between uh, Vivian and Karn. Like, you're not even bothering with the uh, Fae of Wishes type sideboard. You've got all the creatures you want, and you've got all the artifacts you could want. Yeah, I mean, the, the rest of this list of uh, top eight decks looks it's most of the usual suspects for Pioneer these days. Uh, Mono Green Devotion, of course, in first, then Breach Combo in second, Blue Black Inverter, Esper Control in fourth for a little bit of uh, less common spice, Five Color Niv-Mizzet, Blue White Spirits, and uh, Mono Black Aggro in eighth, skipping over Kethis Combo, because I want to double back on that. This is a spicy deck. Spicy, spicy, spicy. We've seen plenty of Kethis in the past, but this is a pretty tasty looking version. Uh, they're running one Ashiok Nightmare Muse, one Jace Wielder of Mysteries, four Teferi Time Raveler, so no interrupting the combo on my turn, thank you very much. Four Diligent Excavator, four Emery Lurker of the Lock, which is a legend and turns on Amber, four Hope of Girapur. That does not turn it on because it's colorless, right? Uh, I'm gonna say probably not because it has to have a color. Yeah, but gosh, wouldn't it? I think yeah, it's just Mox there to turn on Emery. Yeah, yeah. Emery, well, and Kethis turns it on. Lazav, the Multifarious, is a four of. There's a Tashar, Ancestor's Apostle, which lets you to get lets you get a combo going out of the graveyard, and two Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath. Tashar and Uro are kind of nasty. Uh, didn't get a chance to play together in standard, but Tashar is a two-two flyer for four. Whenever you cast a historic spell, return target creature card with converted mana cost three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. So any historic spell, artifact or legend, basically the whole rest of the deck, will bring an Uro back into play. <laughs> That's hideously amazing. <laughs> oh, God. All the clicks and, on Magic Online. This person is a warrior. Yeah, and they run uh, Lurus of the Dream Den. So they can bring back their Diligent Excavators. They can bring back uh, Hope of Gearper to lock, give a, do a soft lock on the opponent. Uh, because when you sacrifice Hope of Gearper, it's a flying 1-1 uh, artifact creature Thopter. But until your when you sack it, until your next turn, target player who was dealt combat damage by it can't cast non-creature spells. So pretty nasty against mid-range control decks if, if they actually can't deal with the Hope early. So yeah, that deck's looking pretty cool. Um, I could see tabling that at a Pioneer table near me if there was such a thing in, that still existed in the middle of 2020. It's pretty sweet. I, I like... Um, like This is uh, redundant combo, uh, resilient mid-range madness to go with you know ridiculous Kefis combo. It's always good when you can cram uh, hopeless value with this Tashar and the Diligent Excavator Plus Uro, that is 
That's amazing. That is just ridiculously good. And that's there to just help you just churn through your deck. How is this deck? Oh, it's a Jace Wielder Mysteries deck. Gotcha. Gotcha. So moving on over to the Modern Champs Qualifier on Magic Online, we have Teamer Reclamation in first. And no, that wasn't the standard Pro Tour. This is the Modern Champs Qualifier, folks. So this deck is running a Run-In-6, a Snapcaster Mage, 3 Uro, and then 26 instants, including Archmage's Charm, Cryptic Command, Fact of Fiction, Force of Negation, Gross Spiral, Lightning Bolt, Nexus of Fate, Opt, and Remand on the back of 2 Wilderness Reclamation and 27 lands. Nasty, nasty. Yeah, mentioned it last week. Uh, Factor Fiction, 4 Factor Fiction in the main deck just uh, makes my heart sing. I don't... I don't think I've felt this good since whenever it was originally printed, man. There is no feeling like knowing your uh, your factor fiction is going to get you some cards. It always feels like such a skill test. Like whenever you make a factor fiction pile for somebody and they take the smaller pile, you're like, yes, I did it right. Good job, me. Uh, this one is a nice one. And clearly Wilderness Reclamation is not going to be dead when it leaves standard. Uh, then we have couple of different copies of Blue-Red Aggro uh, with some burn elements. Second and eighth. This is a deck with two Bedlam Reveler, two, four Monastery Swift Spear, four Soulscar Mage, three Sprite Dragon out of Ikoria, and four Stormwing Entity out of Core 21. Stormwing Entity uh, Foil Extended Arts were my pick on cast two weeks ago. What do we call those at? Let's just do a little bit of a rewind. It was $5 to 12. Those are going to get there because this is a showing up all over the place in the modern tournaments and it seems like the deck has some staying power. So, you know, who knows what could happen in the next, you know, 6 to 12 months until we get back to modern with a vengeance. But hopefully Stormbring Entity will still be there at the other end. I mean, a 2-mana 3-3 flyer uh, seems good no matter what <laughs> you don't have to well, do a lot pr- pr- probably not if that was the only stats but the fact that it has prowess and scries too when it comes in that's a different story jesus it's got prowess too good lord that all right yay and, and they run <laughs> and they run manamorphose mutagenic growth opt lightning bolt lava dart gut shot and burst lightning so they can cast free spells galore to really crank this up and hit you for five to six in a turn that is phenomenal on turn two you metamorphose into stormwing entity get out just get out that is hideous i love it so third place was just a classic red white burn with the lightning helix splash and a couple of white cards in the sideboard uh black red goblins in fourth leveraging two kiki jiki mirror breaker a card that keeps showing up on the uh the hot movers list every week uh, for good reason, now that Conspicuous Snoop has basically activated this whole deck. Green Tron in fifth place, running four Karn Liberated, four Karn the Great Creator, two Ugin the Ineffable, and two Ugin the Spirit Dragon. The usual Tron nonsense, and they're getting some real sexy new lands and a whole bunch of reprints between Core 21 and Double Masters. They're getting big chunks of this deck. Uh, Teamer Escape Shift was in six. This is uh, the usual, uh, sorry, an unusual version where it's not running Primeval Titans or anything. This is two Ren and Six, a Brazen Borrower, three Uro, th- three Escape Shift, and 23 Instants with 28 lands. Hot. I love everything about it. Uro is all over the place, man. 
pioneer and every place it's legal it's good it's just a sign of how good the stupid card is yeah true true multi-format super staple i've had absolutely no trouble selling extended arts extended art foils japanese extended arts and extended art foils that i picked up early um all selling very very well the uh seventh place was more of an aldrazi tron uh that looks very much the same as it's looked for two two years or so now i guess the only major addition is maze mine tomes uh foil extended arts that took off shortly ago and then another blue red aggro burn in the eighth place slot now there was another big modern tournament this weekend uh this one was the monotrader's modern 15k <clears throat> that was also played online of course and it was 250 players First place ended up being Rakdos Aggro, running four Abbot of Carol Keep, a Dreadhorde Arcananist, four Monastery Swift Spear, four Soulscar Mage, and then 21 Black and Red Instants, things like Cling to Dust, Coligan's Command, etc., four Mistress Bobble, and three Seal of Fire. Cling to Dust is amazing. We saw it on the um, on the Top Movers foil list a couple of weeks ago. And it really just reads like that playtest card in the, the way they're playing it. Exile target card from a graveyard. If it was a creature, you gain three. Otherwise, you draw a card. So you need a target. And I imagine they spend a lot of time just exiling their own stuff, spending one black to trigger all the prowess, it seems to be. Um, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, they certainly have options in that regard. So then we had a Dredge in second, a more classic-looking Amulet Titan in third. That blue-red aggro deck showing up here again in fourth. Uh, a Death Shadow uh, variant, the Jund version with Traverse the Ilvenwald in 5th. Gruel Aggro in 6th. This is the one we saw last week that has Hooting Mandrels um, and the Prowess creatures with some Tarmogoyfs. And then Gruel Utopia Sprawl in 7th, which was running 3 Bone Crusher Giant, 3 Clothis, 3 Glorybringer. So this is like the green-red uh, mid-range that we saw with Blood Moons. Uh, as early as the winter time, and then Scapeshift finished up in eighth there. So Pioneer looked relatively about as balanced as a top eight for Pioneer can look. Not really seeing a lot of new decks pop up in there, which uh, certainly isn't ideal, but doesn't really matter that much because people have plenty of other things to do before we ever get back to the paper version. And I suspect that Pioneer will catch a ban some sometime in the next six months if nothing really changes here if all the top eights looked this diverse it'd probably be left alone but the blue black inverter deck and the breach combo deck show up more often than not in greater quantities than we saw this week yeah uh i think um it would benefit us if we had better data but wizards doesn't want us to have data so um we could make a more informed forecast about the future of that but for now like you said, if it keeps showing up as one or two of the top decks instead of being five or six of them, then uh, we're looking pretty good. Yep, agreed. All right, so moving right along to the top paper movers this week, we'll start off with Embercleave, Extended Art Foils. Pretty sure that was a pick on cast in the late fall, I want to say. I'd have to go back and double check our notes. Uh, out of Eldraine, they, it was a great card in standard for a while. It does, it's got a, a long-term home in, in Commander. And these extended art foil mythics are proving out the concept that people will buy extended art foils. Um, because well within the first year, we've seen things like the Great Henge, Embercleave, 
Um, Fabled Passage. And it's not a mythic. Oh, the, right. Although it did do very well. That's a very good choice before it was reprinted in Core 21. <laughs> and, and, and crashed that spec for anybody that got greedy. Um, but the other card I was thinking of is Uro. Uh, uh, as another mythic that drained out really quickly as after being a multi-format stable. So extended art Embercleave foils are just like, where are those going to be restocked from? Um, we talked a lot in the uh, Discord this week about how with so, so many reprints in Double Masters, including a bunch of cards that we just saw in the Mystery Booster boxes, it is pretty awkward for non-premium copies of cards and is really making me feel um, you know, smart for the wrong reasons in terms of having focused on premium cards heading into this era of massive reprints. Stuff like Embercleave, just the card, who knows where that might show up next. Could be in the list for Zendikar 3. Could be in um, you know, the commander decks that are coming out for either Zendikar Rising or for Commander Legends or for the set that comes after that could show up in a um, standard list, uh, a standard product, like a challenger deck next year, if Wizards even bothers to print those. But the extender foils are safe. There, there is no product mix where it makes sense for that stuff to see a reprint in the short to midterm. And typically what we see with really great cards that are multi-format staples is that the next time they go to that well, they will do it differently. Now, you pointed out Fable, Fabled Passage, and that's a good one to flag because that is the the exception to the rule that says that they are not totally safe. The Wizards is clearly signaling with their Fabled Passage reprint, you know, being printed with the same art within the same year before the set that it was originally printing in printed in had even rotated out of standard, that A, they want that card, card specifically around, and B, you should therefore be forewarned that if there are other cards that they just feel need to be around a lot they may not always feel the need to give them fresh art. I'd agree with that. Um, there were there were rules that used to apply that don't really apply in uh, the... We're going to have to come up with a name for it. Let's call it the, um, the Collector Booster era, the Extended Art era. Basically, starting with um, M20 when they goosed the foil rates. Um, I would call it the premium. All right. Let's go with premium era. Um, in the premium era, you don't have the same level of um, protection that you used to have. It used to be like if you got foils, you were pretty safe because then you, you needed it to be in a standard set to get a foil treatment. That's not the case anymore. Uh, we're seeing that, uh, you know, like you said, Fabled Passage got the reprint is exactly the same except for the set symbol. So uh, they're indicating that they have the capability to do this again for the things that are the format staples, the things that can fit in anywhere. And they could very well decide that Zendikar 3 needed, you know, the first Zendikar had a lot of equipment. They could say, well, Embercleave works as an equipment in here. We could reprint Embercleave. It's just much, 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 much less likely. And especially with the presence of the list that we will talk about a little bit later when we talk about the uh, Zendikar 3 announcements. Yep. All right, so moving right along on this list of top paper movers, Shark Typhoon out of Ikoria, non-foil copies going from 8 to 12 after going from 5 to 8 last week. Uh, cards on a tear. It is chomping EV out of what is, in regular booster boxes at least, a very low EV set. In fact... 
pretty much every booster box that is legal and standard right now is showing, I think, 40 to $50 EV, like very, very low, where you would normally hope they would be at somewhere between 55 and 70 um, occasionally higher, depending on how many staples that are relevant in standard come from a specific box. But this is real low because there's no competitive play, so very few people are buying competitive-oriented cards uh, or constructed-oriented cards uh, for competitive play. And Shark Typhoon is a multi-format staple, which at minimum is going to be useful in your EDH decks until such time as you want to drag it out and play it in either Pioneer or Modern or possibly Standard. Uh, it's just a great card. And we've seen situations like this before when, I mean, I don't think that Ikoria should be looked at as being, you know, Dragon's Maisie in terms <laughs> of all of the value being soaked up by a single Mythic. Uh, what was the green-white card? Voice of Resurgence? Thank you. Uh, you know, Voice of Resurgence got very, very high at one point because there was basically nothing else in the set. And it's not quite that situation with Shark Typhoon, but it's close. And just because of the combination of COVID and the set had more of a casual EDH feel to it than it did constructed uh, compared to the sets that came before it. So anyway, Shark Typhoon, I think, is going to continue to move, and I would not at all be surprised to see that card end up over $20 within the year. I think $20 is a pretty reasonable guess for where it'll be come Christmas time. It's just too good in too many ways. Like, the the extra setting on it that you can cycle it for a cre- an uncounterable creature, like, that's pretty bananas. The fact that you're, usually you just get your six-man enchantment, and it sits there, and you'll get value from it if you live. You know, it's your Sunbird's Invocation or whatever. But this is just like when you need it a 2-2 flyer on turn 4 and out of nowhere and you're not worried about a counterspell because you need something really, really specific like a trick bind or a disallow. You know, you got this. You've got the flexibility and that's what's making it playable in so many formats. So next on this list is a card that our own Jason Alt called out, I think on Brainstorm Brewery last week. Uh, Honor Worn Shaku. Um, out of Champions of Kamigawa, non-foil copies going from three to five. I remember picking these up under a dollar at one point, I think leading up to War of the Spark because we knew that it was going to be about Planeswalkers. So foils of this seemed like a reasonable, you know, shallow spec to go after. I think I bought, I don't know, four or five of the foils, maybe moved a couple and the rest I got stuck with. Here we are with another uh, potential exit. Uh, because it's getting played in the Shrines deck that has been at least, uh, you know, this summer popular for Commander players. Whether that's going to be a lasting deck in the format, I have no idea. But Honorworn Shaku is a three casting cost artifact. It taps for one mana, but you can tap, untap an untapped legendary permanent you control to untap it. So when I was originally looking at this card in the spring of 2019, it was about pl- tapping Planeswalkers which doesn't matter whether they're tapped or untapped, to get extra mana out of this thing. And now Jason's calling it out because players are uh, using it with the shrines. The shrines are all legendary enchantments. doesn't matter whether, whether they're tapped. So if you have three or four of them out, then this thing makes four mana a turn. I mean, I'm selling this card if I have any extras around. Um, you got to dig deep into the champions of Kamigawa bulk. You know, this was an uncommon, right? Yeah, uncommon. So... If you've got them around, I would do my best to get rid of them. It doesn't seem like in this era that we will go forever without a reprint. You know, this is the kind of thing they'll slot into a commander deck. And because Champions of Kamigawa was, uh, gosh, I can't do the math off the top of my head, like 18 years ago. 
there's going to be a lot more copies no matter what they do to put more in. And with this biking, I would just say, here you go, going to take my profits and move on. This is certainly the kind of thing that could show up in Commander Legends or the associated uh, Commander decks because it there are 70-something new legendary creatures, like commanders, in Commander Legends, yeah. plus a whole bunch of reprints and a bunch of other legendary stuff probably, so it's a possibility there. There's a lot of places it might show up. It's a fairly specialized uh, mana rock, so it's not a high-priority reprint, but... Card Kingdom's offering a dollar fifteen cash, dollar fifty credit, so the bulk guys should be fine with that. Yep. And and they're offering seven fifteen cash, nine thirty credit on the foils, so I probably have to pull those out of the bad spec box and send them in now. You don't have to, but it would be a good idea. Next on the list, we've got Ernam Jin and of Arabian Nights, uh, going from, in theory, 200 to 340, but keep in mind that this data is ultimately sourced from TCG Player, and I would cross-reference, anytime inventory gets really low on one of these really old cards that are typically in low supply, you need to poke around on eBay, see last sold pricing, check the Facebook groups, etc., and get a more realistic perspective on what they're going for. It's funny, because Ernam Jin is an old-school card, but... For people that didn't play that era, they must look at this now and just go, why do people care about this thing? <laughs> uh, it's because it's really big for uh, old school. In case you didn't know, a 4-5 for 4 mana is super overpowered. Remember, this was the era when uh, Jazam Dijin, you know, being a 5-5 five five for 4 mana is just like the biggest thing you could hope to do, especially that one was immune to terror. Um, the popular thing, of course, to do with this is uh, Ernham Armageddon. And uh, you'll feel pretty good about that. Gosh, there's only uh, 22 copies on TCG right now. And even the low-priced ones are ridiculously high. Yeah, I mean, this is a card no one plays with out of old school. But it is very iconic from that era. So people that are, whatever, 35 plus may have an affinity for it on the, on the go forward. And it's one of those tier 2, tier 3 cards from that era that will continue to get dragged up um, by a combination of collectors in the old school community. Next on the list we've next on the list we've got Erna, uh, sorry Acid Rain out of Legends, a reserve list card going from 55 to 100. This is just draining out the, the pitter patter of the occasional targeting of reserve list cards that is an ongoing undercurrent in our community. Fortunately, none of us really need this card, so it only really matters to the collectors. This next one's interesting because it's it it factors into a debate I've had with people on Twitter a couple times now in the last few months. Notion Thief foils out of M25. Why is this card? It ratcheted up last week, and now we're seeing it go, say, 27 to, in theory, 50, which is basically just, you know, copies being cleaned out of the market. Now, it's an EDH card. It is in seven or 8,000 EDH decks, if I recall correctly, something like that. Um, but the argument being advanced by some people is that cards like this are spiking harder and faster because CEDH, competitive EDH, optimized EDH, is taking off. There are YouTube channels that are featuring CEDH. There are online communities and websites that have sprung up around it. And there is a rolling narrative that this is driving the sale of these cards that are, some of which are 
already staples or super staples in EDH and are just even better in CDH, and some of which make no sense in EDH generally but show up in CDH. So probably the penultimate example is Tarnished Citadel out of Odyssey, which taps for a man of any color, if I recall correctly, but you lose three life. That's correct. You can either tap it for colorless and no penalty, or you tap it for a man of any color and you lose three because uh, it comes into play untapped. So it's good for everything right away. So what I've been trying to do to temper expectations from people that might run off on the CEDH tangent is to say, listen, if the card is great in EDH and also good in CEDH, there and that whatever, however big that trend line is, and so far looking at a variety of statistics, it doesn't look like it's very big, but however big it is, it's a much smaller percentage than the overall EDH community. So there's really no reason to be running off looking at CEDH cards any more than there is to look at, say, popper cards, other than the fact that popper is only common, so it's clearly <laughs> inferior to most other options. But in the sense that these are existing communities, but they're very small compared to Commander, which is now acknowledged as the biggest and most important format in Magic. So where there's overlap, by all means, feel free to pay attention to these cards. I was wrong about Notion Thief. It's not seven to 8,000 decks reported on the EDH rack. It's 13,000 plus and 12,000 of all decks, 12% of all decks that could run it. So Sure, Notion Thief foils have taken off. I suspect that speculators have something to do with that in the short term. Let's see if the market returns the price uh, to something that looks a little more sane. And if not, then, you know, if enough CEDH community members keep poking up their heads and saying that they've bought cards like this, then, you know, you can put two and two together and, and equal four. In the meantime, I would just keep looking at the, the best of the EDH cards, and I think you're going to be safer. I mean, this one doesn't have to be a competitive EDH card. This is just a sweet one to have in a blue-black deck because you know somebody at the table is going to do something stupid in terms of card draw, and this feels so good. This is uh, gather specimens level of just like, no, you were going to do something sweet. No, 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 no. I'm going to do something sweet. Thank you very much. Yeah. I mean, the card's great. And uh, the foils draining out does catch me a little bit by surprise. As I said, I, I think speculators have, have drained it in anticipation of CEDH demand. And now we have to see whether that demand is real. Uh, next on the list, we've got Persistent Partitioners from uh, Ravnica Allegiance. Foils going from four to nine or so. Uh, this is on the back of Bruvac the Grand Eloquent out of Jumpstart being a mill-focused commander. And Partitioners is one of these fantastic specs where... You don't just buy one copy or four copies. You buy a whole bunch. They're like colony rats or whatever, uh, but for mill decks. And people like Douglas Johnson were calling this way up front that this was going to be a thing. And anytime they print a card like this, it's usually worth paying attention to because if you can run 20 or 30 copies of something, then people will. some people will do that. <laughs> if you let they, them, they will come. Yeah, they will drain the market a lot faster than with regular cards. So not a huge surprise to see these foils taking off. Just about on schedule. Munitions Expert is next on the list out of Modern Horizons. The foil's going from 3 to $7. That's based on its inclusion in the black-red goblins list in Modern, alongside Conspicuous Snoop and uh, Kiki-Jiki, etc. You know, Munitions Expert going from 3 to 7 Kiki-Jiki original foils 
jumping from eighty dollars to two twenty five. Um, that's I mean goblins are awesome anyway, and uh, getting the original pack foil on Kiki Jiki is pretty sweet. Um, Kiki Jiki has been reprinted a bunch of times though, hasn't he? Oh yeah, a bunch of times. We there is movement on the other foils as well on the back of this deck, and you know the. I wouldn't be hold, wanting to hold Foil Kiki-Jikis for all that long because it could pop up somewhere. But the original printing foil is a different story because yeah. the, if the card is being played consistently, then its original version will still hold a premium. It also helps that they did new art in, um, I think, I'm not sure which was the next one. I don't know which was earlier, From the Vault Legends or Modern Masters. I think FDV Legends was before that, and they did the... Um, they reused the art. Yeah, they've reused the same art ever since. They they just have not used the Kamigawa art since, and it's just much sweeter looking. So I can I can get behind this. I like this. I don't think it'll hold at 225 but holding a much higher price than it had before seems perfectly reasonable. There couldn't have been all that many copies in circulation to begin with. So at the top of our list this week, a non-foil for once, Ethereal Forager out of Commander 20. Uh, another one of these busted is it cards. It doesn't have prowess. This one has Delve. It's a 3-3 flyer for 4 and 2 blue. And whenever it attacks, you can return an instant or for- sorcery card that you have exiled with it when you delved back to your hand. So you get some instants and sorceries in your graveyard, delve them away, then you get to bring them back if this thing gets to swing. And it's getting played in Legacy for the most part in uh, mono blue um, you know, aggro lists that run Delver of Secrets, Brazen Borrower, True Name Nemesis, Vendillion Click, Stormwing Entity, and Ethereal Forager, uh, alongside Narset Parter Avails, and then 27 of the expected instants. That feels pretty good to play this thing for double blue. And know that you're going to get a ridiculous amount of value from it. You can't. I know Fatal Push is one of the more commonly played uh, legacy cards, and this gets right around it. That's why um, the uh, the delve for a black for the five five is so popular too. Gets around that one. Uh, this is awesome, and uh, it's the commander promo. So, or not promo, but it's a commander only. So it's not going to reach uh, true name nemesis levels. But it is going to be a card that if as it only takes a small amount of legacy play for it to be something that'll start to climb up there. Yeah. Yep. Nice. All right, so let's move on to the top Magic Online movers of the week, starting with Yuriko the Tiger's Shadow out of the Treasure Chest. Um, also a commander card, but of course the commander decks do not come out online, so you are at the mercy of the promo packs and treasure chests to get your hands on these kind of cards. Uh, Yuriko at 33 going up to 54 for 64% gains. I know some of our members that are in the Magic Online channel were in on this card at some point, so they're probably pretty stoked if they held on. Yep. Uh, Let's see. After that, we've got Kethis the Hidden Hand out of M20 has gone from about 2 to 3 and 376. 75% gain. And, uh, you know, people are playing the combo online. It seems like a lot of clicking, but I applaud the dedication. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be interested in playing the deck in person. I don't think I'd want to play it on Magic Online. Next on the list, we've got Rashad and Port promos going from 2 to almost $4, uh, about 80% gain. Uh, I don't know exactly what's driving Port there, but the I'd have to check whether it changed its drop rate in, in something. 
Elvish Reclaimer out of M20, $1.94 to almost $4 for about 100% gains. There are a couple of different decks running around that are playing that card. Sanctum Prelate out of the Treasure Chest from $0.90 cents to $2.51 for 178% gains. That sounds like its Treasure Chest drop rate probably changed. Right, because it's the uh, Conspiracy 2 card, so there it was never in anything else. So if they modify the Treasure Chest, then everything else jumps as a result. And if you want to know about more of that, definitely come in to the Discord to check that out. We've got a very uh, a bustling community there that keeps on top of all the moment-by-moment happenings on Magic Online. Now, the top mover here is Nylea's Intervention, moving from $1.38 to $5. Is that really what happened? That seems that's, strange. That's what the list says. I could not speculate about I tried to uh, click around and find, like, was it featured someplace? Was it... Oh, I'm sorry. This is the uh, the extended art promo has cranked like mad. Uh, I didn't put that on the sheet, so that's why it's only that it's only available through the treasure chest. So uh, it's the the extended art version, not just the regular pack version. My Got bad. you. So it, it it may well have just been removed from the treasure chest, and just from commander demand alone, it may have been driven up um, as it just dried up completely. All right, so moving on to paper cards to watch this week. Um, shout out to the Discord for this first pick because I think it was Brian, one of our mods, who was, I think, first drew my attention to this card on the weekend. Omnath Locus of Rage out of Battle for, uh, Battle for Zendikar is now a five-year-old mythic foil. And we're heading back to Zendikar. We know there's going to be a resurgence of Lands Matters cards. And we also know the following. We know that there are commander decks, two of them, that come out with Zendikar Rising. And we also know that there are uh, decks that come out with Commander Legends, two of them. But we know that in both cases, those decks don't have nearly as many new cards as Wizards typically produces for commander decks. So they seem to be switching to this thing where within a year they've moved from one set of commander decks in the fall, five of them, to uh, a big release of commander decks, possibly in the spring from now on, and then with each set, you will get two more. So there's just going to be a constant stream of commander decks. But they seem to have balanced that off by giving us less new cards in those decks. So they're going to see them primarily as reprint vehicles that are in theme, and it sounds like if they're only giving us three new cards, those are probably three new commanders in foil, right? It, yeah, that's a reason. So, yes. So, if that's true, then that means that even if Omnath Locus of Rage is likely to show up in one of the commander decks for Zendikar Rising, it won't be in foil. So, the only real fear I have is that the list associated with uh, one of the slots in the set boosters for Zendikar Rising is going to be Omnath. And that they will include foils. That could easily be the case, because why not include some thematic uh, cards from Zendikar's past in there? In which case, you have a relatively narrow window. You'd want to be getting in now around 18 and trying to get off closer to 30 somewhere before preview season gives us the full list. Um, I'm trying to find in the uh, announcement about set boosters if the um the list is going to be in foil 
uh, let's see, uh, a foil slot, token, add card. Um, do, do, do. The list has commons, uncommons, it doesn't say, um, as with Mystery Booster, they will be printed as they appeared, including art frame and expansion symbols, so they'll have the little symbol in the bottom, but it doesn't say whether or not they'll be in foil. Um, if eventually they'll tell us about if there will be foils remember the set uh the list only accounts for one in four of the drops even so man I, you're talking about 1200 packs to get one more omnath i wouldn't be too worried about that yeah it, it could easily <laughs> it could easily happen it just makes me want to be a lot less deep on the card because okay it, there are a variety of other places it could catch a reprint, given that Wizards is now kind of throwing reprints into the wind willy-nilly. Um, so I would say, you know, where I might, in under circumstances two years ago, have gone 10 or 12 copies deep, I probably only want to be a handful deep here. Get out of them, and if the market, you know, if it never materializes, then you could look at it again. I'm with you. Uh, I think... You'd be fine at 10-ish copies. I wouldn't go crazy on it, but it seems perfectly reasonable, and it is a lot older than I thought it was. Uh, it feels like it was just yesterday, but that was uh, M21, no, M20 Omnath that I'm thinking of. So the Locus of Rage, uh, yeah, it's a good pick. Also worth pointing out that the ramp is already forming on this card uh, along the path that I'm predicting. So... It's not even that easy to get 10 copies of the foils. You're going to have to dig around just to get two, three, or four would be my guess. And, of course, they are cheaper in Europe as per usual. And, uh, yeah, what's your first pick? My first pick this week is a reserve list card. It is, uh, I keep saying Zerlian, but I think it's Zerilan. Z-I-R-I-L-A-N. There's no third I in there. I thought, I I don't know. Somebody will correct me, I'm sure. Um, He's the dragon helper that uh, for three and double red, three, four, you spend three mana tap it um you're gonna go find it for a dragon it's got haste and exile it at end of turn uh we're you know it's just on the reserve list and it's an awesome awesome dragon especially if you can find some way to sack it for value greater good comes to mind it's really awesome in my dragon deck uh right now it's fallen back down to four bucks and it's been as high as fifteen dollars in the past but now we've got even more awesome dragons. Every dragon that comes out is going to make you want to play with this. Uh, if you're looking for the sweet combo, it's Teferi's Veil. So after a creature attacks, it phases out. But really, uh, I went to go look for one of these for my Ur-Dragon deck. And I said, holy crap, it's gotten this cheap again. And uh, I very nearly bought a whole bunch. How, but, how deep is the inventory? Uh, there are 35 vendors... Right now, I don't see anybody with more than a playset. Oh, wait, there's somebody on page three with ten copies. I, I'm fine with this card long, long term, and it could easily hit a spike off some like strong dragon themes in a forthcoming set pretty easily. Like Commander Legends. But I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I remember Travis calling this card back when Dragons of Tarkir was on the menu. And it went through a minor spike and then retreated. And I'm sure that anybody that tried to go deep on it was caught out. So this even more so than Omnath, I would I don't really want to be having deep inventory on. Because yes, it's reserve list, but it's also very niche. And it's also just unknown. The, the, a lot of these old kind of medium good cards 
in certain themes are often under the radar until say the command zone you know puts it on on screen for 10 minutes and people go oh i didn't even know that card existed because the vast majority of players were not playing magic in the late 90s so from a collector perspective four bucks <laughs> you cannot go wrong like it's it's only going to appreciate in your collection it has no reason to ever get cheaper than that given its age and its lack of reprints but I don't love it as a spec that is going to be optimal in the, say, next 12 months. All right. You're allowed to be wrong. It happens to us all from time to time. <laughs> Fair enough. So my next pick is the Ozolith Extended Art. Uh, I was kind of, when I was looking through my list of potential targets here, I was surprised to find I had not already called this out. Like, I, I feel like we definitely talked about this card during our Ikoria set review. And maybe that's what I'm remembering. Everybody essentially agreed this is going to be a big thing. I mean, this is a open-ended synergy card for plus one, plus one counters. That is a theme that Wizards comes back to over and over and over again. And there's just no way that this card doesn't get there. The extended art foils are currently $20. There isn't a tremendous amount of them left in the market, and we're only, you know, three months out from Ikoria. So... 20 to 35 or 40 seems very reasonable within, say, 12 months or so. Um, the extended art mythics definitely move faster than the rares because there's just that uh, many uh, more of them uh, on the rare side to provide some drag on the pricing. And it's worth noticing, noting that on the go forward from Core 21 ahead, we are very likely to get we we are getting something like 75% more of the extended arts in every collector booster box. Because again, um, to retread some hallowed ground, starting in Eldraine, you got basically four extended arts per box and one of them would be foil. And now you're getting, you know, seven or eight per box, sometimes even more, depending on the specific formulations. Wizards is pushing these. And I think part of that is them seeing that the really good cards like Great Henge and Embercleave, uh, Nyxbloom Ancient, Dryad of the Elysian Grove, uh, you know, the idea that they don't pay attention to the market is nonsense. Of course they do. And somebody keeps an eye on, you know, the prices of the new products that they produce and goes, hey, like, in the same way that we ended up printing more foils because we weren't printing enough, so a lot of foils were taking off. The extended arts tend to the good ones tend to get pricey in a hurry and you know less than the first year and we don't really reprint them anywhere so we'll just print more of and indeed we we saw that in core 21 and we will see it moving forward that said they were not doing that to the same extent in icoria as they will be you know six months nine months from now so ozolith extended arts seem very safe to me in foil I'm with you. Uh, this is a way for those counter decks to build up counters and then have them come back. Uh, you don't need to have it in play, you know, when you get Wrathed. Uh, this is a nice little insurance policy. It's the kind of thing that nobody's going to bother killing until you've got 20 counters on it and then the table panics because, you know, you looked the wrong way at somebody and that walking ballista is just going to, you know, tattoo someone's face. It's pretty awesome. Uh, I'm with you on this. I like this pick. So tell me about your second pick. My second pick is not going to be a surprise to anybody who's been listening to the cast for the last couple of weeks. Uh, you can still get copies of uh, Japanese alternate art Teo the Shield Mage for uh, $10 to $12 on TCG Player. 
Uh, I'm looking uh, at it right now, and you, on the pre-release, there's three copies at 12 or less, and then two copies at 23. I think he's a pretty solid lock to hit $30 in the foreseeable future, considering that most of the other Planeswalkers are already there or higher. Yes, he's the worst. I'm not arguing that. But he is the worst of a very collectible foil set. And uh, when people are going to collect these, they're going to pick them up. It's going to get there. It's only a matter of time. No, I'm, I'm thinking about what my next words will be. I mean, this is largely my fault because I, I drew the, you know, pulled the curtain back six weeks ago on War of the Spark probably being under the radar when it shouldn't have been. We were buying up tons and tons of boxes, and I think people have been pretty pleased with the result, whether they cracked them or, or chose to flip them, which some members did, or are holding them for the longer term, aiming for them to be you know $200 boxes. The fact that Amano is the buy list for the foil Amanos just keeps going up and up and up in Japan. I think when I looked at it today, it was pushing like over $4,500 US or something. And the pre-release and the Series 2 version are both closing in on 2000 us with copies still changing hands in the u.s somewhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred um you know that's a very unique opportunity and we've talked it more or less to death in the discord um culminating in me putting together a big stats sheet that showed the actual playability of all of the planeswalkers um mostly from an edh perspective but also with cross references to where they see multi-format play and Teo does not rank. You know, I color-coded the thing with a gradient, and Teo is way down near the bottom. <laughs> so the the thing about chasing the bottom of the barrel on this stuff is that I agree with everything you said. If you can pick these things up at like 5 to $10 and you don't go very deep on them, you will probably get the opportunity to at minimum buy list them. And... A little further down the road, six months, 12 months, they're going to be even drier. There's no additional supply that's very likely to hit the market. People will start pulling this stuff out of binders as the narrative spreads. And you will, if GPs and LGSs come back to the forefront, you will see some of this uh, flow back into the market. And prices could be repressed in the, say, midterm to an extent. But they are also, that, that trend line would be fighting pretty uh a, a losing battle <laughs> against the upward pressure of the simple fact that wizards printed some magic cards that a global audience is interested in but that were only printed in roughly 15 to 17 percent of the boxes and so what that means is that there's only something like 3,000 maybe 4,000 amanos in the world there is at most 20,000 of these foil uncommon planeswalkers maybe as low as 10,000 I've run the math a couple different ways and keep getting results that tell me that these are very very rare, very very rare cards indeed but do you have to chase do you have to chase <laughs> tail when you could chase something that can stand on its own merit you you probably don't but people thought my Jiang Gang Yu pick was ridiculous when I called that a month ago. It's not a lot better than Teo. Like, Jiang Gang Yu is in close to 3,000 decks or something on EDH Rec. Teo's in 2,000. He's not that unplayable. He, give, he gives you hexproof, and that is relevant. What I'm, what, uh, let me be honest here. One of the things I'm trying to do with this pick is 
if you've never bought a card and had it go up, this is as easy as it gets. I mean, everything James said is true. It's just that this is the lowest priced of a set that is going to, I mean, they're going to chase doing this again. I don't know when they'll pull it off. I don't know what shenanigans they'll come up with. Like maybe they commission D&D artists to do a bunch of lands or something. But they're, they're going to, this is going to be their standard for sweet collectible mini set inside of a set. And, uh, you know, it's the cheapest one. And it will get there. I, I don't feel bad about recommending a card. It's not necessarily about the playability, but it is about the collectability of this card. I can't even take too much of a hard line against the bottom of the barrel because it's not like I'm rushing to sell my $5 and $10 Planeswalkers. Like, I opened some last summer. I opened some in the two cases I opened recently. I You know, I've got some Arlens. I've got some Angraths. I might have a Teo. I've probably got some Dovin. Um, <laughs> so, and I'm not in a rush to sell them because I do believe that you're right, that it's that it's going to get there. I, I think the what I would say is that I would take as many non-foil monos as you would give me at 50 US a month ago. And I did. I tried to get as many as I could. Um, I don't want to be 50 deep on Teo foils, but a handful, sure. Did you... I was going to say for a minute there, it sounded like you were bought, you were trying to buy them on a Liliana's at 50. And I'm like, that's a ridiculous price. Of course you should have bought them at 50. Like <laughs> that, that's, that's what the group buy was. We got like 20 or 30 copies at 48 us each. Yeah. And I, and I think my last two copies on eBay that I sold were, I sold one to a discord member at 95, uh, that came out of one of my boxes. I sold a couple on eBay uh, I think at 105 and then 120 and then sold a couple privately a little bit higher than that. So uh, that card is certainly moving. And for most people, that's going to be the only version of a mono they can ever afford or can justify affording. So it's certainly yep. not going to go down. And the other thing that people forget about the Liliana Dreadhorde General is that, yeah, she's no Liliana of the Veil. But she's actually a really good card in Commander. Oh, she's amazing. And has a very reasonable uh, number of decks that are running her. Like, she's not some kind of fringe card at all. So the the main, you know, knock against her in terms of, you know, whether or not Commander players will get it on the action for Amanos is just that she has a lot of text that isn't Japanese on that version. So you really need to memorize that whenever creature you control dies, you draw a card. Plus one as you get a zombie. Two two minus four is people is each player sacrifices two creatures, and then minus nine uh, each opponent chooses permanent they control of each permanent type and sacrifices the rest. She's already registered in ten thousand decks on EDH Rec, which is five percent of all black decks. Very respectable figures. So, you know, we were we were joking in the Discord about what if she had been the same caliber of card in constructed as say Liliana of the Veil vale, like how crazy this card would be but <laughs> if commander is driving the boat then she's already in position yep I would agree with you on that I mean when it, it's always a feel bad when you open a Japanese War of the Spark pack and you get a great planeswalker but with the wrong art <laughs> but but with Liliana it, it does hurt <laughs> when that happens because you've lost the coin flip but it's still worth seventeen bucks. Yeah, and that's at the at her rotation price. So this is the lowest 
quite frankly, now that I'm thinking about it, uh, Liliana at 17 seems like a lock. Although, uh, yeah, English copy, yeah. Yeah, although uh, I want to see what some stained glass ones are at. I'm going to look that up while you tell me about your last pick this week. Yeah, so my last one this week is along the same lines of the Ozolith. In both cases, we're talking about top five commander cards from Ikoria that are not Triomes. And this one is Dranith Magistrate Extended Art, which I think is a card a lot of people overlooked and didn't really think would make a splash at all. But it's already registered in uh, over 2,000 decks on ADH Rec. Uh, the foil extended arts are drained even harder than the Ozolith is, for that matter. And... The buy-in price is about 20 bucks if you can find them around there, maybe a little cheaper in Europe. And you're looking to get off that train very similar, uh, similarly to the Ozolith EA foils in it somewhere close to 20 and off somewhere between 35 and 40 and have every confidence that it's going to get there. This, this could also be an important Pioneer card. It shows up in sideboards there. Um, could, it still has some time to do some work in Standard if that ever come, reconvenes and you know may even show up in some modern lists over time man i'm looking at tcg player right now and there are just a handful of copies there's like less than 30 and uh, almost none of them are under 25 dollars this is uh this that's a really really ridiculously solid pick like if when tcg drains out then people will go dig up whatever spare copies they have and then that'll that'll be pretty much it i mean we're not gonna who's gonna go back and open some icoria when we got double masters and Zendikar three going on, uh, slam dunk. I'm. I, I would like to argue with you about it, but I really can't. All right, so our fight. We're back on track with our listener picks this week. This is a pick from a Pro Trader Discord member, uh, Dolomite Sooner. Um, I'm giving him partial credit here, but he's still going to get the twenty five dollar gift certificate from Cool Stuff Inc. He was uh, flagging the Crucible of Worlds Judge Foil promo. Um, that had spiked hard uh, last year and then fell back to earth as the world's promo appeared. Um, the world's promo arguably has better art, and the world's promo is in pretty short supply. So I called an audible and told him I was going to switch from his original call of the judge pr- promo, Crucible of Worlds, and call the world's one because it's I think has a shorter ramp. You can get copies as low as about forty-five or fifty dollars in Europe right now, and the world's promo seems destined to end up over a hundred bucks. We're heading into Zendikar Rising. Lands Matters is going to be a thing. Crucible of Worlds lets you replay lands cards. There is some rumor that there are going to be flip lands in in Zendikar Rising that maybe have some other permanent type on the other side so you might have a, a land that flips into a planeswalker or vice versa um no i don't know for sure if that's a thing yet or not but even if it's something a, a, akin to that um we know that they're going to bring back landfall that's got to happen and crucible will just be back on the agenda for a lot of people we could also be getting a bunch of commanders between the commander decks for zeneca rising and uh within the actual set itself that make people want to be dealing with lands matter stuff like Lord Windgrace or Gitrog or whatever. And, you know, I've made money on the world's promos uh, in the past. 
wasn't that long. It feels like it was a million years ago, but it was, I guess, <laughs> I was at Worlds in February. Wow, that's crazy. It was only six months ago, but it feels like a million trillion years ago. Crucible of Worlds, Worlds promo, Dolomite Sooner, $25 for that gentleman. And uh, I think that one's going to get there. What do you think? I'd agree with you. Uh, the Judge promo, I would um, probably make a case that uh, I'm a big fan of the Judge promos in all border foil, like the swords and this Crucible uh, are examples of that. Uh, the Noble Hierarch is another one. The old border in foil just really sings to me as, as somebody who was playing with the old border. But uh, I'm I'm with you that this is in such short supply, strangely difficult to say, uh, that it it seems like a, a good version. To, either one seems good, but the shorter supply on the world's promo is where you want to be. There's like 29 listings on the Masterpiece version. There's 39 on the Judge promos. And the World's promo, there is only 12 listings. And that's the one that came out the most recent. So it suggests that it's not necessarily that it's more popular, I wouldn't think. It's probably more that it is just, there are just less of them floating around. Uh, it's also worth pointing out that Crucible Worlds just came out in Core Set 2019. Yeah. So the you know we just got a printing two years ago wizards is reprinting stuff a lot and we do have the list in zendikar rising so crucible could easily show up there as a thematic companion to zendikar rising but that probably doesn't hurt the most premium versions of the card it might actually just draw attention to them not one bit if you're in on the whether it's the invention the judge promo or the world's promo and they reprint it uh, you will be just fine you have nothing to fear at all. All right, so that wraps up section three. Section four, going to get into our topics of the week. I guess we got two main things to talk about. We got double masters previews, uh, wherein which we will talk about a set whose normal contents I basically don't care about. <laughs> That's true. The, That's true. The on the basis that. This set is kind of shaping up exactly as expected. If you're going to have more than double the rares and more than double the mythics, and you're going to put two of them in every pack, then you're going to have a ton of chaff. And yet, lots of people still seem to be upset with how many clunkers are in the rare slot. It's like, what did you expect them to do? This set has a million reprints, including a ton of cards you just got in the mystery booster packs. And... So yeah, I mean, there's, if you're getting 48 rares or mythics plus in every regular box, stands to reason a lot of those have to be bad so that they can give you a bunch of the really good ones and give you two box toppers, two, even in the regular booster boxes. Yeah, I mean, people are going to be upset about there being, um, you know, what's the one that was the... Uh, the red one Kragen Kragen Wick Cremator like it's it's not great <laughs> there's no way to, to get around that but you all these are cards that yes they are reprinted and you're not going to lose out on much it's going to get there eventually in most of these cases in some cases or uh, Ion Storm like that's a couple of real at least Kragen Wick Cremator's four mana for a 5-4 creature in Limited you can always make a case that things are 
better in limited you know they're they're there to help with the limited environment and really this looks like it would be a sweet format to play in limited i just don't think we're going to play any of it uh you know am i am i wrong about that it looks like there's, there's nowhere to nowhere to do that, and, and yeah. it also doesn't look like a great draft set so far. Um, the the whole thing like take two cards and pass, super cute. And if you and I get to meet at Vegas in summer of 2021, I will definitely go play that with you because two headed giant with two picks per per pack sounds fun. It is fun, and we know it's fun because we did that with Battle Bond. But the 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 main thing is, um, I don't see like internationally stuff is opening back up on a country by country basis. Uh, the US the main market is you know if you're a local game store and you're open right now that that's that feels criminal. Um, I think that double masters is going to lower a lot of prices and that's the point of this set is to lower the prices but for a lot of these they got high because people can't stop playing there are so many decks with an Abyss and angel of hope in there. If you're playing Big White or something Reanimator or uh, Kalia is in this set, you're going to open a Kalia. One of the first things you want to do is get that Avacyn so that your Kalia is now safe all the time and you can keep doing ridiculous things. Um, you know, there's a, a land tax and there's also open the vaults. There's going to be swings and there's going to be swings in every single set. Um, if you want a set that is all expensive cards uh go make your own cube that's that's really the only thing you can do because they know they have what 30 years now of figuring out how to extract maximum value from us it, it was interesting that one of the things uh that brian at tcc tried to throw at us in his sketch comedy this week was that we think this product is amazing and everybody should run out and buy it when that's the furthest thing from the truth. I've certainly bought VIP packs of this set, but I don't intend to flip those packs. I intend to open them as a collector and enjoy them. And I think that they will be a very solid value. And I think that that is the narrative that I've been trying to drive on social media and in our Discord is a realist perspective on what Double Masters is. Now, there's a bunch of socio-political issues tied up in wizards going after the premium end of the market, and they have a real basis for, um, you know, a rooting of frustration and disdain. When you call your $100 booster pack, <laughs> the first time you're ever releasing it, the VIP pack, you are inviting a certain level of criticism, because it's just nightclub you know, downtown nightclub on the corner, exclusionary behind velvet rope, obnoxious and exclusionary. Yeah, because especially that specific choice of wording, VIP, very important person, which suggests that if you can't afford this pack, you're not important. That's just stupid, stupid marketing. <laughs> so if GCC thinks I'm I, I'm ch trying to be a champion of any of that, forget it. That's not where I'm at. What I am, where I am at is that our early analysis has proved true. These are not actually $100 booster packs. True market price is going to settle somewhere closer in the low to mid 80s because Wizards is trying to flood the market with them. So there's a bunch of them around, more than there are of the booster boxes, and we'll get to that point in a minute. 
And because of that, in each VIP booster pack, say that you get it for 85 or whatever, you're going to get at least $5 in value in the, the other stuff because you get two rares and mythics and they can be foil as well. So people are kind of forgetting that you're not those packs are not just hinging on the box toppers. There is a very wide array of what can be in them and you're going to hit a bunch of stinkers because there's so many bad rares in this set. But you also have the chance to go foil box topper Jace, foil box topper Mana Crypt, foil Mana Crypt, foil Jace in the same pack. And maybe only one person on the planet's going to do that, but still pretty cool as an option in your lottery ticket pack. What you really need to be thinking about when trying to decide whether to approach these packs at all is, A, can I afford it? And if the answer is no, then just walk away. Like, We'll get to that in a second as well. But if you choose to approach this product, you, all you really need to know, the simplest question, is will the two foil box toppers average $40 or more? If they will average $40 or more worth of value, that they're going to hold that value over time, then you're probably doing just fine. And there, when we didn't know what was on that list, it was certainly more scary. Now that we know most of what is on that list as of tonight is July 29th, Tuesday, we now know that there is Force of Will. That's going for pre-ordering in the 350 plus range. We know that there's Foil Mana Crypts. Those are going around 200 bucks. We know there's Foil Avacyn Angel of Hope with very nice art. Those are going upwards of $100, 150 Chrome Mox, Ditto, Jace the Mind Sculptor, Ditto, Sword of Feast and Famine is up there. Karn Liberated is flirting with 100 bucks. Maybe it drops down to 60 or 70 at a low. Doubling Season, Blightsteel Colossus, Atraxa, Batterskull, Kali of the Vast, Sword of Fire and Ice, Exploration, Blood Moon, Stoneforge Mystic, Dark Confidant, Cyclonic Rift, Mox Opal, Noble Hierarch, Academy Ruins, Goblin Guide, Lightning Greaves, Worm Coil Engine, the Urza's Mine Power Plant and Tower, Expedition Map, Sneak Attack, and Council's Judgment, Crop Rotation, Phyrexian Metamorph, Fatal Push, Brainstorm, Sword of War and Peace, and Meddling Mage. There are very, very few stinkers in there. Now, some of these cards, for some of these cards to be worth over 200, some of these cards have to get really low. So you could see, as we saw with Masterpieces, you could see $15, $20, $25 of some of these. That could be things like Expedition Map. See? I don't think Map will get low. Well, here, but but think about this. the These are printed on a single sheet. On a sheet, there's 121 cards. We know now that there are 20 Mythic Box Toppers and 20 Rares, or 20 cards that are listed as rare. The sheet is probably uh, 80, 80 rares and 40 mythics, and that gives us 120. And that means there has to be one of the rares that has three copies. Okay, I'm with you. Pro- probably it's Expedition Map, would be my guess. Now, we will see that pretty quickly here because one of our partners in Europe will give us box cracking data, and that data will show that one of these rares shows up way more often than it should. And that's also true, remember, of Cultivate in Core 21, so it wouldn't be unusual given the current formulation standards at Wizards. So some of that stuff has to get pretty low. But 
the top 20 of the box toppers are looking really spicy. Like, exactly what you would have hoped for. And we're still expecting... We saw today that Thoughtseize was revealed. And we now know that Sword of Feast and Famine is definitely in. These are great cards. And they're going to sell well. Now, one of the quirks here, as far as we can tell, and plenty of people seem to be in agreement in the community, the non-foil box toppers may actually be more rare than the foils. Because in what we're hearing is that Wizards printed a lot less of the boxes than they did the VIP boxes. Or at least the VIP packs. Keep in mind, a VIP bot display box has four packs, each which has, I think, 35 cards, and they're supposedly 100 each. So if you open a box, you get two non-foil box toppers. If you open one VIP pack, you get two foils. So if there are equivalent amounts of both, then they the foils definitely don't have any kind of premium. And if Wizards really overprinted the VIP packs, then there might be anywhere from you know, 1.2 foils for every non-foil to say twice as many. We, we, we won't know that till we see how the market settles out and you know how many copies of each appear in the market over a period of time. But it's worth considering when you're deciding which copy to target. Because if I was say going after something like Thoughtseize, I might consider going for the non-foil version. Mostly a constructed card. Constructed players are you know, kind of a mixed bag in terms of whether they prefer foils or non-foils, but you'd be very safe with the with a really nice non-foil copy, especially if it is significantly more rare than the foils. I'm not sure that the psychology of things has quite caught up to that because, like, we are really... We've been programmed over the years that the foil is of a sweeter version. And while it could be intellectually true that this version is rarer than another version, I don't know that the the average player would be in on that. I do think that you need to, you're right, that you need to consider the format where the card is popular. Like, for instance, um, right now you can pre-order the foil of uh, Cyclonic Rift box topper at around 60, and that feels low considering how many commander players there are. Um, but I, I would agree with you that you'd be good on either one because these are both, you know, so sweet. The best part is these are all reprints. None of these are new. You don't have to buy the hundred dollar pack. That's we're, we'll get into that when we, yeah, when we, yeah, when yeah, we get yeah. to that. I've, I've got plenty to say on that, on that okay. exact tangent, okay. but the, just to, to backtrack a bit, I think you bring up a very valid point which is that the counter pressure is the conditioning of the market to pursue the sweetest version. There, It's a very awkward position in this case, though, because normally we expect the foil to be more rare. But in this case, that may not end up being the case. I, I think there are some cards where the foil still, still trumps because some of the very EDH-focused cards, you know, your Atraxes and your Calias and so forth, the foils will still outpace the non-foil for sure because the card people are willing to invest for the best possible version of their commander and they will still consider that to be the foil 
But I think it's going to be interesting. I will not at all be surprised if, when we're looking at this in six weeks, we are remarking on how some cards are showing either equivalent or inverse pricing between the foils and non-foils versus what people would normally expect. That would not shock me. I mean, um, we already have a version of this now, thanks to collector boosters, where the foil and the non-foil of a regular magic card from standard, they're about the same. And that is something that is so different from just like a year ago when they decided to first um, max to, to crank up the drop rates of foils and then they gave us uh, the collector booster versions of things. It's really, um, they, they've done a lot to us to change what we are expecting and what we would think, ha- what we expect would happen. And it's not really the same anymore. Where your, your foil of, um, I don't know, foil Terror of the Peaks and regular Terror of the Peaks are very similar. Whereas the extended arts have a much, much more of a premium on them because we have a different version to chase. Now, in this case, um, what I don't know and what I would really like to know is if um, when Double Masters went to print, like, was coronavirus a thing uh, at that time? And did they have to make a, a conscious decision about which to print more of um, in that in that time frame? Because if we were still in Grand Prix and we were still in going to shops, we would have Jumpstart and Double Masters available as sweet things to do at the shop with limited and that's how a lot of these would get cracked i wouldn't be stressing about uh the the relative amounts if everything was still open but given that we can't go into shops and draft double masters but we're apparently all going to get as much vip product as we pre-order that does make me think that there will be more of the foils and I would not put down money on which way the market's going to settle out. I would not guess on that. Double Master Booster Boxes are out there around $300. And people were talking about how they, they think that price is too inflated. If we look at things like Modern Horizons, we saw boxes get down as low as $160, $170. Supposed retail was about $240, and you're online vendor of choice or LGS was going to be somewhere in between uh, at various points. So to go to 300 from 240 is a jump, but they did double the rares and the mythics in uh, across 24 packs. And there are two box stoppers. So I think that, you know, it's hard, hard to respect Prof's analysis because it just doesn't do the math. If it's a $300 box, but you get two non-foil box toppers, and those box toppers are going to be rare enough that they can probably hold at least an average of, you know, if we're saying that the foil box toppers might average 40, which is not crazy because the Ultimate Masters uh, box toppers are average 57 or 58 right now, then the non-foils can probably be expected to hold at least 20 each, which means that your box isn't, isn't actually 300, it's 260. And in that 260, you're you're getting 44 rares and mythics as opposed to, say, in Modern Masters 2015, you would have only gotten 24. And boy, you would have gotten those crappy paper packs too. Oh, those drove me crazy. Well, yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of damaged cards that came out of those packs as well. So yes, they are yes, 
their margin increased. Prof is right to point a finger at Wizards and say, you're getting more and more for spending less and less. A VIP pack being $100 is basically a, the minimal amount of physical product they can give us at the maximum possible price. And it is absolutely worth it to flag that and ha you know tell people to take a step back and think it over. But it's not like they tried to sell you two standard rares at $100. Like, give me, let, let me give you an egregious formulation that would get even me angry. If they were to try to make magic play to win, that's what would get my attention as being damaging to the game as a whole and likely to scare off players and be bad for everybody. And what I mean by that is if they said, you know, a good example is something like a Nexus of Fate, a box topper that ended up seeing a serious amount of play as a four of and constructed, spiked pretty hard a couple of different times because there was no easy way to get them. And there was GP weekends early on where tons and tons of players needed that card and vendors didn't have any. That's problematic because you have to go, your supply chain for your main formats needs to be uh, wide. <laughs> it, it needs to push a lot of product because people, you're saying you're going to need this for this format by the way we designed the format, but you can't easily get the card. We've got a real problem here. And if these VIP packs, for instance, had two cards that were playable in standard, but there was nowhere else to get them, and they were like Euro quality cards, and they ended up being a big deal in the format, I can easily understand how that would be rage-inducing, because it is pay-to-win. You don't want to have a game where paying the most amount of money is the only way to win. And that is not what Magic is. And I guarantee you that if we were, if Prof was in on this conversation, he would say, you're crazy. Look at the price of legacy decks. Look at the, the, the how the reserve list is holding people back from playing the game. Look at how expensive fetch lands are in modern, et cetera, et cetera. But the people that, are, that think inside that box are not thinking clearly. Magic is a platform. No one is forcing us to play standard or pioneer or modern or legacy or vintage or popper or commander or CEDH or kitchen table casual or anything else the fact that i can't even remember all the different ways to play like i left out <laughs> draft and sealed i and left a two-headed giant and cube come on there are so many cheap magic cards and yes the very best of the best are pricey by design because it's a collectible card game they put that on the table right up front it was true in 1994 it's still true in 2020 it's still going to be true in 2030 if they go full digital VR, it will. They will go to loot boxes for sure. <laughs> like all of all of this is baked into the product. If you don't like that aspect of the product, you really have to question whether the product is for you because that is never going to change. They are not going to make this a living card game where they give us a subscription model. As as much as I think it's interesting to think about how that would play out, they're going to keep giving us expensive options but lots of ways to play for cheap. And that's the thing about Double Masters. Most of this stuff is reprints. You oh. had a shot at it in the Mystery Boosters. A lot of the cards are already cheap, and the ones that aren't are going to get even cheaper. 
the foils for some of this stuff that used to be expensive is now going to be dirt cheap because a lot of them got extended art foils here and the normal foils just aren't going to be as big of a deal you know there was a time when a foil dark confidant was a pretty hefty price tag i would guess those will be very very cheap in their regular version coming out of this set because what deck do you need them for that you don't already have them for how many jun new jund players are there and how many of them even run dark confidant anymore where else does anybody play the card so a lot of this a lot of this has to be looked at through a fresh lens and that lens is that wizards has stated almost unequivocally in 2020 they are committed in a big big way to reprints there have been literal literally hundreds of reprints this year and we used to talk about that say four or five years ago in terms of 10 15 maybe 20 important reprints per year because the product mix just didn't allow for any more than that to flow through. And then occasionally, starting in 2013, every two years or so, we were getting a master set. And then at the end of the master set process, or what they said was the original end before they <laughs> clearly segued right into planning double masters, we were getting like two a year. I think M25 and Iconic Masters were in the same year. Um... So reprints have really accelerated. And the end game here is that regular cards are going to intentionally be very cheap. Like look at the EV of all the booster boxes in standard right now. A lot of that is COVID, but a lot of that would be suppressed anyway by all of the extended arts, showcases, Godzilla box toppers, etc., taking up a big chunk of EV in various boxes and making the other stuff very, very cheap. That, that's the economic necessity of that formulation. And as ignorant as it is to call something a VIP pack <clears throat> and suggest that the people that can't buy it don't deserve to, there's nothing wrong with addressing the premium side of the market so long as that stuff is all cosmetic, which by and large it is, right? Yeah, it's all, it's all cosmetic. It's the same card, it's just... Which version of the card do you want to spend money on? If you're content with the uh, original, with a reprint of Cyclonic Rift from in Double Masters, great. It will play exactly the same as the super sweet foil box topper art, and that's the genius of this: is that it's asking, like like you were saying, it's asking a collector, uh, how much will you pay for this more deluxe version of the exact same card? So if I can put a cap on analysis of, the, analysis of the sealed product and what we actually believe about it, fair to say that both the VIP packs and Double Masters booster boxes are, as with most Magic product, lottery tickets. They have an element of randomness to them. I don't think that the, the VIP packs have much of a yaw. Like I think they're probably very similar to collector booster boxes in the sense that they are plus or minus 20% on average. But they are a lot more swingy because there's only two really important slots. Whereas in the Ikoria collector boosters and the um, Core 21 collector boosters, you can have you have a bunch of different important slots in each pack, and you have a, a lot of ways to gain value. If you miss on one slot, you might hit on the other. Somebody showed me a picture of a Core 21 pack they opened today that had two foil Nefari, sorry, two foil Teferi and a Teferi. 
Wow. It, it was like 290. It was like the regular foil to fairy, a showcase foil to fairy, and a, and a, a borderless to fairy or something in the same pack. It was crazy. And those those boost collector booster boxes have been very consistent as well with like a plus minus 20%. The VIP packs primarily depend, as I've said many times in our Discord this week, on the total volume printed. If they print these things to oblivion, then yeah, they're going to be really, really cheap. The other thing that somebody, uh, well, multiple people really, have pointed out about box toppers from Ultimate Masters is that they trended generally down. If you look at the basket of box toppers, they were mostly a downhill curve. They weren't gainers, by by the by and large, and that was also true of Zendikar Expeditions. Now, why was that? Is it because there's too many of them in the market? Maybe, but I have a different theory. The reason that those things trend down is because most of the cards involved were well understood up front. And because they were well understood up front, they were priced appropriately right out of the gate. In fact, they were overpriced. People were so hyped on foil expedition... Um, polluted Delta. You know, polluted Delta or whatever, that they were going for three or 400 bucks right out of the gate. And it was really hard to move that product at that price. And so for anybody to get them off the shelf, they had to step it down over time and that like undercutting from vendor to vendor on TCG Player and eBay eventually makes those products cheaper. The same thing happened with the Ultimate Booster Box, the box toppers out of Ultimate Masters, and it could easily happen here. So there's absolutely risk in cracking VIP packs. It's not something you should be doing as a, as a spec. It's something that you should do because you're a collector and you think it's fun to open, you know, uh, a hundred dollar booster pack that's probably probably going to give you 60 80 to 100 dollars worth of stuff but might give you a foil force of will or something because if you if you open say six or eight of these or whatever you have a pretty decent chance at at force i mean the the rares drop twice as as much as the uh the mythics do <coughs> so it's not going to be automatic, but it's so, if, if you're worried about any of that at all, then just take a big step back. The smartest thing to do with most new sets is just to buy the super staples when they hit their lows. So you don't have to worry about any of this. You don't have to worry about box toppers or VIP packs. You can just start looking for Cyclonic Rift to get really, really cheap. And then you just got to ask yourself the question, are they going to go ahead and reprint this again in Commander Legends? Well, I mean, you're always we're we're in that time of maximum reprints. Um, you know, they mentioned that set boosters will have a 25% chance of being one in 300 cards. Um, but the the real thing is just do you want to spend money on these sweet versions of things? Like why it it's something innate to the collector card game model it's the reason why um in my dragon deck i've got uh you know the foil showcase triomes and in every other deck i'm okay with regular ones there's one deck where i'm making the conscious effort to get the sweet versions of things i got the great hinge in, in three decks but only one deck gets the sweet full art foil you know that's that's how we are and they they know that and they have been trying to figure out well 
they I guess they've known for years that they could have just printed cards to sell to us directly, and it's not until relatively recently that they started doing that. Mythic Edition was the first attempt, and they just don't have a model that allows for them to sell them that quickly, but they really figured it out with Secret Layer and Collector Boosters. They, they've got our number. If you're a collector, they will figure out exactly how to get you these cards, and they're going to get uh, more of it up front for them rather than it going to the secondary market. Um, do you remember uh, what set it was had the three by three foil sheet? Oh, that that was the Throne of Eldraine uh, Hyper Premium product that right. I think only my dad bought. Um, <laughs> but that wasn't. They went too far because that was like four hundred dollars or something, right? Uh, but I, I would I would argue that yes, the price point was very high. But the real issue there was that it just didn't have enough bonus value. They, right. they got a, they, they were too greedy with that product. They should have just plowed value into it, and they would have sold out of it. I suspect that they did not sell out of that product, even though the print run was pretty low, because it just wasn't worth it to do it. Like the only people that would have done it are guys like my dad that are just completionists to the core and will buy whatever they print. But it, I don't have a problem with there being a $500 or even a $1,000 magic product, but it's got to be packed with value. Uh, they're, they're getting better. Wouldn't you agree they're getting better at it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, as I said, I think the, the, the collector boosters look very, very good. And now we've got this new concept of the set booster. So we should switch over to that for a second. Because we now know that for Zendikar Rising, they're changing the formulation yet again. There are still going to be regular booster boxes, 36 packs, just as you know and love. There are now going to be uh, collector boosters, 12 packs, lots of great stuff in them. Collectors everywhere will buy plenty of, including myself. And there's going to be a new thing. Now, the new thing is called a set booster. So set booster boxes are basically designed to strip out the chaff that is only put into regular booster boxes because you're going to be drafting them. So it, it removes the premise that you want a booster box for limited play and acknowledges that there are players who hardly ever play limited that might just want to get a greater density of sweet things that are collector focused or that they might use for various constructed applications. And so the set booster is going to be Different formulation for the boxes. There's 24 packs instead of 36, I believe. Or wait, maybe I got that wrong. Is it 30 packs? Yeah, it's 30 packs. So it's 30 packs instead of 36, and there are only 12 cards per pack. So instead of getting 480 cards, you're getting 360. Right. So two-thirds the total cards. But the formulation is... An art card slot, so they're basically giving you art cards similar to what we got with Modern Horizons, which I think, as a collector, is very nice. Um, I'm down. I, I have a full set of those. It's one of the only things I've bindered in the last five years of Magic was the Modern Horizons art cards. Uh, there's going to be a full art basic land, which you know, the more of these they give us, the less exciting they are. But you know, no one's going to fight it because they're still free. There's going to be a bunch of slots that are some combination of commons and uncommons and it can skew to a greater percentage of uncommons if you're lucky there is going to be a uh, what they're calling a head turning slot and 
It's going to be a visually interesting looking card. You never know, quite know what might turn up here. Um, it's going to vary from set to set, uh, but they're going to be like showcase style cards. So think about the comic book mutate creatures from, from and the triomes from Ikoria, for instance. And then there's going to be a wild card rarity slot, two of them actually, slot 10 and 11, can be some mixture of commons, uncommons, and rares. And 1.6% of the time, they're double rares. So sometimes your packs just have two rares, but most of the time, they do, they do not. Then there's going to be a big finish, which is going to be uh, a rare or mythic slot. And they're increasing the mythic drop rate just generally. So we're going from one mythic every eight rares to one every 7.4 rares. A slight tweak, but could still matter. Uh, just creates a little bit more drag on mythics as specs, I would think. And this is another way by which they can make important mythics cheaper for standard purposes, right? Right. And so then there's going to be a foil slot per pack. So keep in mind that standard boosters have never had a foil in every pack. That was something that was usually reserved for master sets. In the case of double masters, you get two foils every pack uh, and two foil box stoppers and two foils, rares and mythics in the VIP packs. In the set boosters, you're getting a foil slot in, which is probably mostly common, foil commons and uncommons, but... I would imagine that most of the bonus value from switching from a regular booster box to a set booster will be found in that slot uh, or the, you know, uh, the head turner slot, the showcase slot. And then there's going to be a token uh, slot 14 that was a token ad card a lot of the time is going to be the list. And the list is just going to be 300 interesting cards from Magic's past. So... They're basically taking the concept that they started in the mystery boosters where they're just going to take, they're going to address the increased demand for reprints by just spamming us with reprints, a lot of which will not be financially relevant. Like, I'm not too scared by this because a lot of this stuff is cards that like we're probably not holding for spec purposes anyway, and that vendors, it, it's more of an issue, I think, for, you know, vendors with wide, very wide inventory because... Every year they have to have more and more cards. Uh, Michael Caffrey from uh, Tales of Adventure brought this up on BSB last week about how it gets harder over time the, the, the more the game ages because you're, if you want to have a selection of relevant cards from all of the sets, your inventory gets bigger and bigger and bigger over time. Your processing and handling and sorting time gets tougher and tougher and tougher. And in the case of these cards, they're printing them like they did in the Mystery Boosters, which is to say that they're printing them in their original frames, original art, and they're just putting the little Planeswalker symbol in the bottom left corner. So when you are processing collections that you're buying, you have that extra step now where you can't just rely on the frame and art to tell you what it is you've got in your hands. You've got to do a head check down to the left. Super obnoxious. <laughs> I think... Um, the set booster, the list, uh, I, I think we, we need a better name for it, but I, I kind of like the ominousness of like being on the list is, uh, is, is interesting, but what it feels like to me is, like I said earlier, there's a one, my math is correct. Yes. Where one in 1200 packs is going to have 
one exactly one copy of a card on the list. So you'll need to open uh, something like 300 boxes at 30 pack. Uh, no, you'll have to open exactly um, 40 boxes to get one copy of the reprinted card. That is a tiny, tiny amount. Uh, let's see. 25% uh, of the time, instead of an ad or token card, you'll get a card from the list. Oh, you're right. It's right. It doesn't replace the ad token card. It's only one out of every four times you get a bonus card from the list. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So then it, the question is, how many of a card need to sh actually show up before it makes a dent in a card's price? Is just knowing that a card is on the list going to change? This is treasure chests in real time. It's just without the instant feedback that we get via uh, Magic Online's economy. This is really fascinating because if you tell me a card is on the list, I'm immediately going to think, oh, well, it's it's going to be worth less money because there's going to be more copies coming along, but there won't be that many copies actually in circulation. So how much will being on the list affect it? And, and this is why the panic from people like Kenobi and the professor is so misplaced. Because, yes, they haven't given us the fetches yet, but we know they are giving them to us this year. And even if whatever you know mechanism they use to reprint the fetches is insufficient and they, they maintain a good chunk of their value, honestly, so, so what? They, they're, they're giving you hundreds of other reprints. It's okay if some of the game pieces are stay 50 to $100. If you really only have to buy them the once, and only if you really want to play those formats. If you're playing Standard, you don't need fetches. If you're playing Commander, you don't need fetches. There are so many other land cycles. Is your deck better with fetches? Yes, but you should probably be detuning your deck for maximum fun anyway in Commander. You don't have to play CEDH. So you can acquire them slowly over time. Some of the fetches are still pretty cheap, the ones from Consotark here, so you can use those in, in that situation. Over in Pioneer, can't play them at all. They designed a new modern replacement format that doesn't require fetches. And I would guess that in Zendikar, we're probably getting a sexy new rare land cycle that is going to go a step further and give us a, you know new duels that will help take pressure off fetches which is part of why Wizards is probably not in a huge rush to make them super cheap because they figure, okay, the, the super invested players that are in modern legacy and are more serious about optimizing their EDH decks either have these or will acquire them at a reasonable pace. The, in the meantime, with mystery boosters, hundreds of reprints. With the list, 300 reprints. And this is stuff like the ones they showed us so far is Muscle Sliver, Cloud Goat Ranger, and Pact of Negation. So it's going to be a mix of quirky theme, thematic cards and some good ones. Obviously, it's you know 300 cards. There's going to be some real winners in there. And they, the fact that you can get these random cards in a this thing that's called a set booster, but it's essentially, I think, going to be this will be the new de facto norm for which booster box you'll grab. Unless you're a store cracking to draft or a player that's buying to draft with your friends, you're probably gonna get set boosters from now on. It, it, I would guess that it's not crazy that in a year or two, draft boosters may be out of print or, the, or, or they may be 
at 75, 50, 25% of their old print volume because set boosters will be so much more appealing to most players. It's got a higher rare drop rate. And I think somebody did some math and said, like, they're roughly equivalent, but Wizards is going to try to charge us a buck more for the set booster. So we'll see how it actually plays out once we see how the formulation opens on the table. But the, the bottom line is this. The, the car, essential cards of magic are getting cheaper. That, that, that's the bottom line. It doesn't matter what Prof tells you, he's wrong. Magic is not getting more expensive, it's getting cheaper. A ton of reprints have been printed this year. A ton more are headed our way. I expect that to be the de facto standard. Part of this is also they get the added bonus of scaring off some MGG-finance-minded people that can't handle the the reprint risk. And unfortunately, the side uh, detriment that comes out of that is that the vendors are additionally taxed with more, <laughs> more to process, more to handle, more to think about. Uh, and the websites that manage all this data become increasingly complex as well. But from a player perspective, if I was a player with a you know whose total magic budget for the year was a couple thousand dollars only, or even five hundred, thing things are looking up, dude. Oh yeah, um, I think uh, I want to try a couple of drafts with these set boosters, but uh, you're losing like uh, what is it? You're losing t- three cards. And just think about what your average draft is like if you stopped after pick 12 instead of going all the way to pick 15. And you're going to be like, hmm, that's not going to make a huge difference to my 40-card deck. And uh, like, it feels really luxurious uh, when you do a cube draft and stuff matters all the way down because that's a, you know, a more closed environment. But I, I will not be surprised, like you said, if it, draft boosters are just gone. Uh, you might see that uh, when Pro Tours come back in person, maybe that would be it. But, you know, the set boosters seem like so much more fun. Who doesn't want to open a three rare pack? You know, who doesn't, who doesn't want to open, like, focused and good commons and uncommons instead of just, you know, a whole bunch of return to natures and whatnot? Post-COVID, draft is definitely going to make a, make a comeback. But, yeah. I, I could easily see the classic formulation draft booster boxes becoming a niche product um, over some period of time. Now, a uh, couple of things we know about Zendikar Rising. We know that from the product packaging that there is a new Omnath. There is a Nahiri. It looks like we probably have Nissa and Jace involved as well um, as our Planeswalkers for the set. So be curious to see what versions of those we get. Probably new ones. I I don't think they've well, done... Well, definitely. Certainly yeah, new ones. They haven't done reprints of those. You know, we get to see post-Pirate Jace. Uh, hopefully he's kicking some butt. All right. So final topic of the week. We did want to just touch on the <laughs> wildly ignorant attack by Tolarian Community College and uh, Kenobi, where they kind of went out of their way in a video that they posted to YouTube this week to suggest that, well, they tried to suggest a few things. Using MGG Price as the dartboard, 
they threw the following darts. That MTG Finance is basically a collective of wannabe Wall Street types that want to sit around in three-piece suits and smoke cigars and laugh at the plebes, which spending time with hundreds and hundreds of people of this in, in this community um, over the course of the better part of a decade, I can assure you with supreme confidence is not the case. Um, in fact, if anything, our collective politics <laughs> in our Discord lean so far left that the people in our Discord that are a little more centrist or right-leaning are current, constantly challenged to, you know, decide if they can stomach uh, the discussions going on. So it's deeply amusing to me that because I made the fateful choice of posting my the picture that appeared of me in a newspaper article wearing a pinstripe <laughs> suit and kept it as my headshot in most social media venues for years, that when people have interacted me with interacted with me on Twitter and seen me making arguments for MTG Finance over the years, they have come to kind of assume that there is this, you know, sleazy Wall Street persona that is either associated with me or other people in the MTG Finance community. And of course, no community is perfect. There are certainly douchebags present in all walks of life, including most of the major sub-niches in Magic. But the, the vast majority of our membership, at least, is nice people that help each other out and just love Magic and want to play more cheaply. They want to make a little money on the side. Basically, nothing they do is injuring or impacting anybody outside the community. But there is this persistent assertion that players speculating on cards is why cards are expensive. And it's so hard to hold back on people when they're saying stuff like that because they are so ignorant. It is just not how the economics work. You know, even if you look at the microcosm of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis in MTG Finance, I can't make cards in North America more expensive. I can only make them less expensive. I don't. I hardly buy cardboard in North America anymore. Most of my stuff is sourced from Japan and from Europe, and it's flowing towards me so that it can go fill an inventory gap that the market opened all on its own. Continue to assert that the the number there are only two major factors that have impacted the price of magic cards over time. And the first, which is outsized by several orders of magnitude against anything else, is Wizards' commitment to printing sets that have limited print runs, that go out of print, and that have cards of differing rarities. Can we agree? <laughs> there is nothing more uh, responsible for how card prices have gone at any given point in Magic's history than that. Well, I mean, it's worse than you're making it. Like, you're giving the very nice version. Remember that all the way back in Alpha, Beta, Revised, Unlimited, Revised, um, there was islands on the rare sheet. Like, there was a whole, like, um, information gap, card accessibility gap that um, Garfield built into the original model that they've, you know, made better uh in recent in, since those days but yes you're right they deliberately print a uh, a lot more of rares than they do of mythics and that is the 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 core thing and um 
I want to let you finish what what you were saying. I'm about to start ranting about something different. So you you keep going with your your points. You're you're brilliant. Keep going. I don't know about brilliant, but we're at least <laughs> accurate, <laughs> which is all I really expect of Brian and his friends. That if they're going to make bad sketch comedy, that they could at least be accurate about it. The the game is based on rarity, and the sets go out of print, and that is a f- economic formula that will lead to price spikes every single time. You could start this game from day one, build it again the same way, and run the simulation again, and you will end up in a very similar position every time. Because it's either a living card game, and the game's in print all the time, like something like Ascension, which is a deck-building game that borrows pretty heavily from Magic, and I think was built by ex-Magic people, if I'm not mistaken. And keep that on the on the shelves in a board game store for all time at 60 bucks a box or whatever. Or it is a product that has new things coming out every 6 to 12 weeks, and they're going to do that forever. And if you choose to participate, you are deciding... You get to choose when to get in and off the train, and you get to choose how to play within that, you know, the variety of play spaces they offer on that platform but you are agreeing that they're going to have some cards that are much more rare than others and nothing is more responsible for magic pricing than that the second factor that no one ever talks about that we've talked about a couple times on cast in the past is that players are hoarding all the cards it's that simple Buy lists are open for business. They are struggling during COVID to get cards. That's because not enough players are dumping their cards on the buy list. Magic players own way more cardboard than they play with. And if they would just ship it to the buy list, you could bring prices down so much more effectively than trying to target MTG Finance, which is a tiny portion of the community buying a tiny portion of the inventory and largely just mopping up market action that is already in motion by the time we get there like i don't buy i I never try to corner the market on anything and i don't know anybody that does that we interact with or would have any respect for there are certainly people out there that have tried you know infamous things like seance guy but trying to buy every copy of seance and whatever yeah there are dumb people that are going to do dumb things but the vast majority of players that are involved in mgg finance come to that niche and specifically to mgg price because they want one of a few things they want some guidance on how to manage their collection it's not that simple there there is value in that analysis they want to understand the metagame through the lens of the financial side of the game so while you and i are never going to be the best people to talk about the playability of a card or to analyze the meta by comparison to the pros they often skip over the financial aspect of, okay, so Uro is a really great card. What does that mean about when I should buy it? Because as a player, that can often be as important as to whether or not I should put it in my deck. There is an increasingly complex product mix with new formulations all the time. We Just in the last year alone, we've had secret layers. We've had, we now have set boosters. We've had collector booster boxes. We've had um, Jumpstart. They are innovating at a breakneck pace. Any market that is hundreds of millions of dollars a year, 
that has that level of product complexity is going to support some degree of relevant financial analysis. And there are plenty of players who want to get compartmentalized, bite-sized information in the form of podcasts or articles or access to an online community so that they can plug in when they've got a chance, figure out what their next move is, what card am I going to buy for my deck, what's a good deal this week, what should I be selling because of reprint risk, etc., and then go back to their day-to-day lives. And I think that a lot of the frustration, ultimately, that comes from Brian and other people like Brian who see MTG Finance as a pure net negative that should just be removed from the game is that, A, they don't understand the economics at all. Like He, he doesn't understand how the vendor side of the game and the armchair chair vendor side of the game both prop up the market. Like The high end of the market is what is floating this brand right now during COVID. There's no doubt about that. Um, whether that's free money from the government or the people that were unaffected by COVID and have had a job the whole time, those are the people buying Magic product in large quantity because they're bored and they're at home and they can afford to. So the other thing is that a lot of these people don't understand that speculators are actually just players that are acting as small-scale vendors with lower overhead. And in any economic model where you look at what the opposite of that would be, basically a pure monopoly, where, say, Wizards sold all singles directly to all of us, and they just said, Mythics are $25, Rares are $10, Uncommons are $3, and Commons are $0.25 cents or whatever, you would, you know, that, that would be a scenario where the prices were basically on lock. You could have an oligopoly situation where you say you have three or four operators that are licensed by Wizards to sell product and nobody else can sell sealed or singles. And that would be very hard to manage. There's lots of reasons why that's not super feasible. It's hard to control what happens once something is in somebody else's hands. But let's just say that that was possible um, from a logistics perspective. You'd end up with some Channel Fireballs and some Star City games, and your prices would be even higher than those brands tend to be because they're facing a lot less competition in the market. So a really healthy market, a market that leads to the the minimum on prices, given the precondition that you're dealing with a set, a, a brand that prints collectibles that go out of print and that have varying rarities, is always going to be in a situation where you have low overhead operators that can fill in the bottom of the market. So say you have a card like a Fetchland, and the Fetchland goes for $60 on TCG Player near mint low. That's the current market price for the card. If I can get that card somewhere else at $40 or $45, whether that's because I bought a collection or I imported it from overseas, and I will then sell it to somebody at $52 to $55 or $50 to $50, 48 to $52 or something, you, that person is fulfilling a function. Yes. And when the you know people like Brian point the finger at MG Finance, they often think about it in a very simplistic term. They, they think it's about driving hype to buy up a card, to buy it out, to then control the market and set the price. And the problem... I'm sorry. Um, I have a, Go ahead. a question about this because... Are there people that pull that off? Because it seems like I can think of uh, cases where things like, uh, I'm remembering uh, the summer where random ass reserve list cards were spiking like Narwhal was $12 for 
a little while yeah, there. When, Bit- when Bitcoin was driving that. Right. So there have been <laughs> the Bitcoin craze. <clears throat> I forgot that was the factor. Um, that doesn't really happen because there are just because there's so many cards to soak up. Like, yes, you can clean out TCG player, but as soon as people hear that a card is worth something, they're going to go raid their binders, and then you got to either buy all that up, or you're hoping to sell into the hype when really nobody is there to buy the card, correct? Well, well this is the thing. <clears throat> Let's say that we're talking about a reserve list card that only had... T- Let's talk about, like, Urnum Jin. Let's say that last week there was 10 copies at 75 bucks on TCG and somebody buys those 10 copies. Has that person injured the game, injured the players? They're, they now have 10 copies and they're going to relist them on TCG player at 225 or whatever. They are now testing the market. They are not forcing us to buy those cards at 225 and they don't have all the inventory. Just because you bought the last 10 doesn't presume that the other 20,000 or whatever copies of that exist are suddenly not present in the market. This brings me back to my earlier point about players hoarding cards. There's probably plenty of people like my dad who have copies of Urnumjin sitting around in binders that they don't get any derive any utility or value from. They are an infinitesimal fractional piece of joy that relates to being you know, your collection being complete. But they that has a declining utility as your collection gets bigger and bigger. Take it from somebody who has massive collections of lots of things. <laughs> Toys, graphic novels, D&D accessories, magic cards, kaiju, concert posters. My, my house is basically a collectible store. The, you're less happy. <laughs> you're less happy with each with each acquisition there is basically almost no magic card i could suddenly own that would bring me any reasonable amount of joy at this point and that is what you sacrifice if you make a hobby into essentially a job that's that's worth flagging like i get why people like brian just you know have this attitude of i just want to play the game i don't want to think about the economics why are you making me think about the economics that's so obnoxious i don't like thinking about money in this context i just want to have fun i want to get good value then do i'm sorry and i'm sorry but they feel it's fomo driven right like because if they feel as though the people that also focus on the economics of the game are winning one over on them because when they later sell you the card they feel bad that you made money when they could have just bought the card earlier. Or in the case of somebody who just doesn't have the budget, they just feel bad in general because, you know, there is an economic disparity to be addressed that, that depending on who's selling them the card may well be justified. The, but a lot of the time the person selling them the card is probably somebody in the same income bracket or in, you know, the next tier up or the one past that, but definitely not in the 1%. Like most of the people, that are that spend a lot on mtg finance that speculate deeply or have big collections are middle class to upper middle class to rich but mostly the middle that midpoint between middle class and upper middle class these are people that are doing well in life but are not buying yachts by any means so 
while economic disparity is real and while why magic while magic like many games has more work to do in terms of making sure that we are the most inclusive gaming community possible the most of the dynamics that are in play that affect card prices are very very hard to change as a speculator picking up some copies getting back to the Ernam Jin guy he's got 10 he wants 225 if somebody pays him 225 then the market was inefficient leading up to that point because on the demand curve there was always this guy that was willing to pay 225 and he just hadn't tripped over the situation yet and then he hears that the card's spiking and he goes hey money is not particularly valuable to me i have plenty of it but i've really i've been wanting to get ernam jin since i was 16 now i'm 45 i'm an architect i make 120k a year and thank you for reminding me that this card is cool now that guy could have bought that card two years ago for more than half that price less than half that price but he's happy to pay it because that's the the price that was posted and he his price elasticity is very very high that doesn't mean something in the market's broken that means that the market was made for a single transaction between one buyer and one seller both of whose conditions were met now if the next copy posted is 225 and it doesn't sell for an entire year then the, there's a different inefficiency that inefficiency is is coming from the fact that the person who's selling the card is being stubborn and they are not recognizing that if they were to lower the price they could find the next most ambitious buyer and hit a strike price and then work their way down the curve now if all 10 of those copies sell at 225 the inefficiency of the market was large and it was always a 225 dollars card the price just wasn't reflecting that yet and that and that sucks if you don't have 225 but that is almost impossible to fix and it will certainly not be fixed through the elimination of speculation because let's just think about the alternative whether you cliff buy 10 copies or 10 people buy one copy for their old school decks the impact on the market is exactly the same and in fact it's worse when the 10 copies disappear into decks to get played than it is if they're in the hands of a speculator which one do you think is more likely which copies do you think are more likely to circulate into the market the ones in my inventory or the ones in the hands of 10 old school players those guys never give up anything man and and commander players don't sell their cards either nope. i saw somebody posting on, on twitter today about like the second or third mangara foil ea they had bought because they had multiple white decks that they wanted to upgrade. Oh, the card's bad. And and as Commander becomes more and more pivotal for Magic, we are in a situation where people are encouraged to buy 5, 10, 15 copies of Cyclonic Rift. And this is part of why, I believe, Wizards is getting more aggressive with reprints. As they realized that they were about to pivot away from Competitive Constructed, and further in the direction of commander they realize that commander is a very is the broadest of formats vintage technically has the biggest card list but it also has a much smaller viable card pool commander by far has the largest viable card pool and if that's going to be your main format 
you need more reprints because there's way, 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 way more cards in that format. Whereas key, having a master set every two years was actually just fine for if modern was all you had to worry about. But if you're going to add additional formats and make Commander your primary thing, you need more reprints. So, I mean, very long-winded set of arguments. And <laughs> the com- but it's worth it to pause and think about why the conversation has to be so long. Because the market is that complex. And that's also why they don't get it. Because they, even if you present these arguments to them, they're tuning out. They already have a predetermined attitude and stance on the topic. They may not have the um, either the will or the you know intellectual tools to explore the topic in enough depth to really wrap their head around all of the complexity. And that's why MTG Finance exists. That's why our paywall is tremendous value. That's why other people's paywalls, like Channel Fireball and Star City Games, we tell people all the time, those content streams are also worth money and worth being behind a paywall because they add value. This is a complex enough game with tens of thousands of game pieces, with dozens of different ways to play it, with a global market, with a shifting product formulation mix, it makes sense that people need some guidance and that the combination of guidance from YouTube pundits, from pro tour players, from MGG finance types, triangulates the information so people can parse the game and get the most out of it for them. So I think you've done a fantastic job explaining the the, the wide-angle economic uh, model of Magic and why it's turned out the way that it is, why cards have different prices, why things are worth different amounts. And I think what always gets me mad about people who are dismissive, um, overly sardonic, and generally unhelpful in their um, attempts to take down the CD shadowy MTG finance cabal is um, my goal as a high school teacher with two kids is to spend as little cash on magic as possible. I talk about the things that I buy, but um, I'm somebody who works on buy lists and I keep, you know, I, I have a, a, a small amount of money that's separate from everything else that I do. And um, that's what I play magic with. Um, you and Travis operate on larger scales than I do, and it's awesome that magic accounts for these things. And my goal has always been very simple, to spend as little as possible. And I want to help other people do the same thing. And the main thing I always think about is, is this card the right price right now, like you said? Is, is it priced correctly? Or is it going to go up? I always want to stop, prevent people from having that really shitty feeling of, oh, if I bought this two months ago, I would have spent $20 less. That feeling sucks. And it is a, a thing that is preventable if you are listening to the right folks. And I, I hate it when they're just like, oh, it's all speculators. It's all shadowy. We got... I, I do an article every week. I do a, a podcast uh, until uh, Travis had a kid. You know, it was once and, a month. And, and this is what's funny is that before we had a Discord, which is just over a year old, I guess about a year and a half now, 
Um, all of our content was public. Every article, my pro tour coverage, our index, collection management tools, the podcast, everything was public. And at this point, our stuff still goes public 48 hours after we produce it. So it's not like we're there's anything being hidden behind the paywall. Yeah, we're the worst than, the worst shadows. Uh, you know, other than additional analysis. And I think one of the problems is that people like the prof who have never been, one of the things that's so wrong about his content is he didn't interview us. He didn't talk to us. He's never been inside our product. He has no idea what he's talking about. He's assuming that what goes on in here is like, <laughs> the next piece <laughs> of dirty intel that we snuck out of Wizards <laughs> of the Coast is on Tuesday, it's this. And on Wednesday, it's that. And we're going to like do all these sneaky things. And we're going to sell people cards that we know are getting reprinted when they don't know. <laughs> Trust me. The, the amount of advance intel we get per annum in terms of total conversation volume in our Discord amongst hundreds of members is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction versus the just general good day-to-day -day analysis. <laughs> What's getting low on supply? What is due for a reprint? Where can we buy stuff overseas to get it cheaper? Et cetera, et cetera. It is the nuts and bolts of navigating the complexity of this game lowering the price maybe making some money it's not shadowy or nefarious by and large and i fully understand that because you know we we heard about pioneer from an ex-member two days before everybody else i get why that pisses people off i get it it just doesn't define everything that we do it's we happen to be in the right place at the right time because we're at the center of the spider's web and we hear lots of shit. And, but that's all around us. Part of what MTG Finance does is parse that stuff and figure out the signal to noise ratio. There have been rumors all year long. The vast, vast majority of them have not originated anywhere close to us. We've been hearing it downstream just like everybody else. But it makes sense when you hear a rumor to that you should parse it right you, you want it makes sense to discuss it with other like-minded people and figure out what you're supposed to do about it and sometimes that is knowledge that not everybody has and sometimes it's public knowledge sometimes it's wizards announcing set boosters and then everybody setting to work on the task of figuring out what that's going to mean for the game and that's what we are here for we help people figure out how to make or save money playing our favorite game Magic the Gathering. Oh, what a tagline! Um, are right, there... Let's let's wrap this up. We've, okay, we've so long winded. But, uh, you know, we're, you know. We're, and we're and largely preaching to the preaching to the choir here for sure. One quick question that I don't know if there's an answer. Why are they hung up on fetch lands? Well, because almost everything are... else has gotten reprinted and fetch. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah. It, it, because they made it a crusade and they were so invested in it as a public stance, the the mental, you know, the cognitive dissonance <laughs> sets in and makes it hard to go back out to the wide angle view. Now, I will say this, and I don't really want to get back into all this, but <laughs> fetches need a reprint. Yes. It's, it's that simple. But the game is not going to collapse if that reprint is not in a standard booster box. And I'll leave it at that for now. Okay. 
that's good good policy good policy all right so i guess we can call that a wrap where can find people find you online cliff uh you can find me online at word of commander on twitter as well as my weekly friday articles on mtgprice.com you guys can find me on Twitter at MGGCritic, as well as via my occasional articles on MGGPrice.com, and I am constantly haunting our Pro Trader Discord. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MGGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month, not $9.99 prof, or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MGG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. It really will. You can just come in and see for yourself. And if you want to call bullshit afterwards, go ahead. We'll give you give you your money back. No problem. Just make sure you have notifications off because we tell you all kinds of awesome things constantly. Yeah, it's very distracting, to be honest. All yeah. about you. Yeah, I, I, on mobile? Oh, no way, man. Uh, the, the, the number one complaint amongst users is not that they're not getting enough value. In fact, no <laughs> one has said that to me any time recently. I think what I, I do get a lot of is there's way too much going on in here and I can't possibly keep up. Bro, the things that sell out too fast, I think that's been one of our complaints lately in the group buys that we've done. Um, once again, MTG Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Don't forget to use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. James, we did it. We made it to the end. My goodness. Very proud of us. Yay, us. Brings us to the end of another MGG Fast Finance. I've really enjoyed our discussion, Cliff, and we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MGG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.